Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we're going to start in Hebrews 7. Um, the context in Hebrews 7, uh, we'll just kind of run through Hebrews 1 through 6 real quick. Chapter 1, Jesus is God. In fact, he's more than the angels. He's God himself. Chapter 2, uh, we get this idea from chapter 2 that we're going to pick up on in chapter 7. Chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So God enters the world that he created, and he did it so that he's, he's fully human, but he's also God himself. So the claim of Hebrews 1 and 2 is the foundation of Christianity. Melchizedek gets mentioned again, this high priest idea, in chapter 5, verse 10. Um, Jesus called, a, called of God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? And so before they dig into it, the chapter five and six becomes a large like re reprimand saying you guys are dull and you're stuck in your ABCs, but it's time to get into the meat of the faith and what this really is and what it really means. So he gives them a warning not to fall away or to be passive, that they should be active about the faith. Um, that, that's like a teacher saying, listen up folks right now, because they know they're going to teach something that's kind of thick. Right? And Melchizedek is definitely thick, but it's one of the concepts in the Bible, the way God orchestrated all of human history towards Jesus, and it points at Jesus in a powerful way. So don't be passive, be active, get your brain on this morning. We have this issue with the, the, early, the early converts to Christianity were primarily Jewish people, and they had an issue with Jesus being their high priest because he's of Judah, he's not of Levi. And all the priests are Levites. That's how we've always done it. That's how it's always been. So they have this intellectual struggle that they can't quite accept that we know Jesus has been resurrected. We know that he was God. We know that he was special. But how can he be our high priest and replace the sacrificial system? That didn't make sense. How can one sacrifice cover all the sacrifices? So what they do is go back to synagogue and keep offering sacrifices, even though they didn't need to do that anymore. So that rebuke happens. And you get people that really don't want to dig into it. And part of why they're going back to tabernacles is because it's easier. When you become a believer and you change the way you live, it's easier sometimes to go back to your old way of doing things and your old habits. And everybody in your family and friend networks, when you first get saved, they expect you to act that way. So for these Jews, the pressure of Judaism would be strong. You need to be at sacrifice. Why were you not at synagogue this weekend? So they would hear it. They'd hear it from everybody they knew. So... The writer's encouraging them to not do that, not to be think, thinking about it. And then in chapter 6, we had this wonderful call to faith. Have a faith like Abraham. Abraham had faith. And Abraham had that faith prior to the Levitical priesthood. So have a faith like Abraham. And then we come back in verse 1 of chapter 7, we come back to this character named Melchizedek. And, and you just get this. It goes back to Genesis 14. There's this little reference of this guy. And, and so they're pointing this out. So have faith like Abraham, but then with Abraham, if we're supposed to be more like Abraham, who's this Melchizedek character in the Old Testament who Abraham seems to treat as his priest? 
So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also gave, Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning the king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. In order to get past this hang-up with Jesus coming from the tribe of Judah, think about Melchizedek. Think about him powerfully. So the writer of, the writer of Hebrews lines up a, a set of points here that Melchizedek is worth looking at. He's worth our time. But he's not worth our time if you're going to be lazy about your faith. He's worth our time if we're going to be intentional and diligent about our faith, as he said in chapter 5 and chapter 6. So let's look at him. Melchizedek, the name in verse 2, verse 1, 2. Um, Melech in the Hebrew is king, and Zedek is righteousness. You put them together, you get Melchizedek. And Melchizedek then becomes the king of righteousness, or the king of all righteous. So he points out that that's what his name is in verse 2, that it means that thing. So <laughs> I like this because I was reading this, and it was almost like the writer of Hebrews is doing expositional commentary on Genesis 14. Because he's taking the words apart, he's telling you what they mean, and he, it, so it feels extremely familiar as even a template for how to do Bible study, this is how you do Bible study. Let's look at what the names mean. Let's look at what the words mean. We'll pull them apart. And then he gets into King of Salem, which in the Hebrew means peace. And they would have known that. It would have been a familiar word. And that's noted in verse 2 too. It's an ancient name, by the way, for Jerusalem. So Salem was peace and it was the home of the Jeru. So that's where we get the word Jerusalem. So he's the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace at the same time. And then we get this kind of image of the priest of the Most High God. So he's a king by name, he's a king by territory, and he's a priest, Most High, and that's not allowed in the law of Moses. You can't have both a king and a priest be the same person under the law of Moses. So this would mess with Jewish people. You can't do that. You can't mix church and state like that. Furthermore, there's a third role that's, that's part of the, the leadership God set up under Moses, which is prophet. There's priest, prophet, king. And to have them be the same person in any way is not under Mosaic law. Under Mosaic law, it predates this combination of roles when you mention Abraham and how the roles were combined before Abraham. So if you're saying we have to do it the way Moses told us to do it, the, resp the Christian response to that is, well, that's not the way God is telling us to do it now. In fact, pre previous to Moses, there was a way of doing things that God's calling us back to. So it's... You know, if you're going to look back in history, let's look all the way back in history. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. So there's the greatness of a priest that has something to do with the greatness of God in, in this idea that there's this most high priest and there's a most high God. Priest of the most high God then would be something pretty special. So how does this play into the Levites? Where does this go? First, I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis. Easy to find way at the beginning of your Bible. Going to go to Genesis chapter 1. So, and, and, I, and I do think this is where the writer of Hebrews, he's referencing these Genesis pieces because he wants them to understand where does this come from? Where does this role of dominion come from? So Genesis 1, verse 26, Adam is given dominion and rule over all of creation. That makes him the authority or the king. Genesis 1, 26 says, then, let, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Why is God referring to himself in the plural? 
because there's a trinity there. God's a relational being. He talks to himself, and that's good. So he knows what relationships look like. He knows what love looks like because he's, in, he's relating with himself. So God says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish and sea, the birds, the air, over the cattle, the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, even creepy things. So humans are supposed to have dominion and authority. So both Cain and Abel, I'm going to skip forward to Genesis chapter 4. Then you get to this Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam, give an offering. Where did they learn how to give an offering from? Either God told them directly or Adam taught them how to do it. Meaning this role of priest where you give offerings to the Lord, you give worship to the Lord, is being held by the same people that have dominion over the earth, king and priest. So Genesis chapter 4, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. One perspective on this is, before the Levites ever started to give the firstborn of the flock, Abel did it. And God said, that's the kind of offering I want. He also was looking at Abel's heart, but that means that God accepted the offering of Abel even though he wasn't a Levite. So it goes way back to Genesis. Either God or Adam taught him that. Luke tracks the genealogy of Jesus all the way from Adam. So if you look at Luke's genealogy, he's going all the way from Adam through to imply that there is a plan that God's had since the very beginning, Genesis. It started all the way at the start. So you get this idea that, well, there's people that with theories, uh, Ken Johnson's one of them, that from Enoch, the person who was raptured, he didn't die, he was taken up. From Enoch to Jesus, there's 70 generations. I'm trying to count those out, and I wasn't able to do it in the time that I had this week because we were moving. But there are theories out there. Johnson leans on um, lots of extra-biblical sources to make that case. But the argument is that there is a path of both king and priest that goes all the way back to Adam and through Enoch and through the line that Luke presents in Luke chapter 3. And then it goes all the way through. In fact, from that argument, Jesus is the 70th generation from Enoch, as predicted in some of those extra-biblical sources. So he gets very excited about that. Uh, Methuselah lives as long as he lives. It is uh, the judgment of the flood comes when Methuselah dies. Some argue the day he dies, the next day the flood started. And what you get is Noah. So then you're on Noah. And then I'm going to give you another example, Genesis chapter 8, if you flip forward a little bit. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar of the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. How did he know what was clean and unclean? Because he hadn't read the book of Leviticus. In fact, Levi wasn't even born yet. So how did he know what was clean and unclean? Somewhere along the line, and this is called progressive revelation, God revealed to humankind how he wanted things and by the time Moses is writing it down, it's already well known by those people God's talking to. And we see glimpses that the revelation comes over time. Does the same thing with the name of Jesus. He doesn't give us the name until later. Does the same thing with the location of the tabernacle. You get clues that get easier and easier the further along you get. Like if you get the hint book and you start uncovering hints, it's the later hints that get really simple, like just go and look here and you'll find it. So it does the same thing with the name of, like, the location of the tabernacle, the name of Christ, who the Messiah is, which tribe is going to bear the Messiah, all of those things. And the argument is he did the same thing with the priesthood. So it came to pass that, that you have Cain and Abel giving these gifts, but then you also have Noah giving an altar on the gift. 
Noah then becomes the, own, the head of household of the planet of the only surviving people after the flood. He's therefore has dominion. He's the king. He's in charge. But he's also the priest building the altars. They haven't separated the roles. So in chapter 9, the blessing or the Noahic covenant shows up, like the rainbow covenant. And in the rainbow covenant, Noah's, Noah's giving authority and blessing by God after he builds the altar. So God accepts his role as a priest. This passes on to Shem. And then there's this line of priests that are both sovereign and they have priesthood duties. Interesting, like, that when you get to Genesis 14, which is being referenced in our chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 7. It's referencing Genesis 14. So if you turn there, then you get to this story of Abram. His name hasn't been changed yet. The one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he was dwelt by the terebinth tree. It's odd that the very first mention of the word Hebrew in the Bible is the same chapter that's heavily used by the book of Hebrews. So you go to chapter 14, and there's a strong connection there. The word Hebrew means one who crosses over, and the reason they crossed over is because God said so. And the entire book of Hebrews is asking Jewish people to cross over to Christianity because God said so. And it's the exact same pattern that's there. Genesis 14, verse 13, you see that 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 use of the word Hebrew, but we also have this, this idea that Abram's being used by God or hearing directly from God, in that, he's, he's either king, prophet, or priest. God is treating Abram as one of his authorities on earth. He's the head of his household. So a curiously and quickly mentioned character then pops up in chapter 14 after God has directed Abram where to go. Abram runs into a character that is his, he treats as the high priest. Only four verses in the Bible, and you get this very mysterious character named Melchizedek that just pops up. Genesis 14, verse 18. This is what's being referenced in Hebrews 7. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So, again, first mention. This is the absolute first mention of tithing in the Bible. It's Abraham giving the first tenth of his spoils from the war with, what was that guy's name? Uh, Crotomancer or something like that. Long name that starts with C. He wins this battle and he brings his spoils from the battle and he gives the first of those spoils, he gives a tenth part in verse 2 of, of our chapter over, that, over to this, this priest who accepts the tithe. And immediately after this tithe with Melchizedek, Abraham's blessed and given the Abrahamic covenant. So God seems to honor what Abraham did and how he did it and how he treated this character, Melchizedek. Here's the problem. Melchizedek, we have no mention of his mother or father. Now I'm back in Hebrews 7. We have no mention of when he was born or when he died. How unique is that in the Old Testament? Like the Old Testament bores us with when people were born and when they died and who their genealogy was. Like all over the Old Testament, we see these genealogies. The Jewish people were very meticulous about tracking who was born unto who because they were looking for the Messiah. They wanted to know who the seed was that was mentioned with Adam and Eve. So we get the first reference to Hebrews, the first reference to tithing. Genesis 22 has the first mention of worship in it with Abraham. All of these firsts of the Jewish faith come out of Genesis. That's good because it's a book called Genesis. It's where all the firsts come from. So the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to these things. Verse 3 in Hebrews 7, the no mother, no mother, father, no genealogy. He's not saying that Melchizedek was Jesus, but he is saying 
He's like the Son of God. There's an image here. Again, we're learning how to do Bible study. There's a pattern. There's a typology. There's an image of, of a Christ-like figure here who kind of comes out of nowhere. He has no beginning or of days nor end. In other words, he seems to be this eternal being that shows up in the middle of the Old Testament. Now, that's a, that's a stretch, but it's also a biblical stretch, right? So if we consider Hebrews the authority of God, they're looking at those stories in the Old Testament as though they have meaning towards Christ. And this is why we do Bible study the way we do it, word by word, line by line, chapter by chapter. So in the New Testament, then, they're basically looking at Melchizedek as an image or a typology of Christ. He gives the bread and the wine, just like Jesus did. So he's not Christ, necessarily. The Bible never explicitly says that Melchizedek is Jesus, but the imagery is solid. And so the Bible does say that he looks a lot like Jesus. So it's an odd context, but when we look at it after Christ, the story of Melchizedek makes total sense. Like, all of it fits in place. So Hebrews 1 set this up at the very beginning. If you look at the first four verses of Hebrews 1, Jesus is God himself. And he remains a priest continually in chapter 7. There's no death recorded for Jesus. There's no beginning recorded for Jesus, unless you want to look at uh, first, or the first chapter of the book of John. He was there at the beginning. So this is a very literal read of the Old Testament. It means exactly what it says. And, it, and Hebrews has treated the Old Testament that way all the way along, that there's no accidents in the Old Testament. When it was looking at Psalms, the, the Psalms, we see the same kind of thing, is that they use those careful studies to actually make their arguments. Each word has meaning, and the Bible study exemplifies how to do Bible study. Like chapter 7 is how to do Bible study. And I just thought that was a great thought. Early believers treated each word of the Old Testament as inspired, as holy, as specific, and God-given. And so when we're looking at this, they don't contradict the Old Testament. They, they are in absolute concert with each other. There isn't a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There's one God, and God inspired both of them. So perhaps this is a Christophany in Melchizedek. Um, the, I think in verse 9, if you skip ahead, it, it says, so to speak. I think the writer is very well aware that they're taking these things literal to make a point, but not too literal, right? He's like the Son of God, or it's so to speak like this. So we can get understandings from this story, but not necessarily make those kinds of theological claims. So Jesus is not Melchizedek, but he's, Melchizedek is like the Son of God. I also like how they framed it in that direction. Verse 4 applies the study. Now consider. Now think about this. What does this look like? How great this man was. He was king. He was priest. He was even priest over the patriarch Abraham who paid him a tithe. How powerful is that figure in the Old Testament that shows up in four verses. If the patriarch Abraham, they add an adjective there, pointing out the fact that Abraham's the father of all Israel, if the father of all Israel has a high priest that he goes to, who is this Melchizedek? God spoke directly to Abraham in Genesis 12.1. He appeared to Abraham, Genesis 12.7. He was in a vision to Abraham, Genesis 15.1. Why did Abraham need a priest? He seems to have a fine time talking to God all the way through. But suddenly he still honors this priest figure, this mediator figure. He gives him tithe and offering as though he owes something to him. You give tithe to someone who's greater than you, not someone who's lesser. right? You give tithes directly to God. Melchizedek takes this as a representative of God, as a priest of God, and he takes these as a trusted mediator that Abraham respected. 
So one of the arguments of the, you look at some of the other books, the, the book of Enoch and Noah, the extra biblical sources, the way they explain this is that the priesthood that came from Adam and Abel and Enoch, that that priesthood was still being established even till Melchizedek. So when Abraham came out of another area of the world, he ran into these people that still worshiped the living God directly from the traditions of Adam. And those generations weren't all that long. They lived a very long time according to Genesis. So there were very few links in the chain that would be distanced. So God taught Abel what was appropriate. He accepted the worship and the altar that Noah made. He was guiding them through history directly on how to do things. This is a lot like judges into kings. God initially with Israel said, I'm going to lead you directly. But when that didn't work, he allowed them to have a king to be doing that leadership for him. So the same sorts of things are true. He, he initially worked with priests directly, but then as Moses shows up, he sets up a Levitical system to stand in that place with some sort of codified law. So God does more because he knows humanity needs more. So this idea of tenth of the spoils, literally taken off the top of the heat, heap of, is how you would read that. It's the best or the first fruits of God. I just like the idea, anytime you're talking about tenth or spoils, God gets our best. He doesn't get our leftovers. And I spent a lot of years of my life always giving God the last bits of things instead of the first bits of things. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting idea that Abraham honors in this kind of way by giving Melchizedek his best, not his leftovers. Verse 5 in Hebrews 7, And indeed those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive the tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they've come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. That's a, a long way to say the blessing of Melchizedek goes, this isn't kind of the blessing like I just bless your leadership and where a lesser blesses a better. It's a blessing that a better gives to a lesser. In other words, Melchizedek ranked above Abraham. Consider that. Think about that. But yet we get all the stories of Abraham and his descendants. We get no stories from Melchizedek and his descendants. So why is that? That idea that the tithing is given to the priesthood here, the writer points out in verse 5 that it's a commandment. The reason that the Levites take tithes is because God said for them to take tithes. It doesn't mean that other priests don't exist. It just means that he's going to narrow in on them. The law then is compulsory. When people give tithes, they do it because it's a law that they have to do it since Moses. But think about Abraham. His tithe was completely voluntary. He gave it because he wanted to give it. It was totally out of his heart. So if Hebrews is arguing that we're coming back to an order of Melchizedek priesthood, all tithing in the church is then voluntary by the distinction of what that looks like that. And a voluntary gift is so much better than a compulsory one. So people say, people have asked me, do I have to tithe? Does it, and the answer to that is, actually, in the Christian faith, you don't have to tithe. There's no rule that says you have to because we don't live under Levitical law. We're not bound by that law. But God expects that voluntary gift, and it's so much more pressure, so much greater than a compulsory gift, right? Giving a gift of tithe is so much more precious and sacred than paying your taxes, and they are virtually the same thing. They're, they're entities that are larger than you asking for your money in some way, shape, or form. And how beautiful. It, again, tithing is an interesting thing. Did Melchizedek need what Abraham was giving him? No. 
God doesn't need our money. He never asks for it. But when it's given out of respect and love and honor, Abraham and Melchizedek's relationship was so much better, so much better than Levitical priesthood. And remember, that's the argument of Hebrews. Christianity is so much better than Judaism in so many ways. So Psalm 110, verse 3 prophesies this is what happened. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of mourning, you have the dew of youth. There's something beautiful about volunteering. It's why we never twist arms, because that's Judaism. That's legalism. But when we allow people to be led by the Holy Spirit and we celebrate that when it happens, it's so much better, so much more wonderful. So that idea of greatness is defined in two ways. Melchizedek received the tithes from Abraham, and then number two, he gave a blessing to Abraham. So it goes in two different directions. Seven says, now beyond all contradiction, if there's an intellectual issue for the readers of this around if Jesus could be a priest or not, there's no contradiction with Jesus being a priest by the order of Melchizedek. There's an order of Melchizedek, there's the order of Levi, there's the order of Aaron. So by that order, there's no contradiction here whatsoever on what tribe. There's, there's nothing that's a problem. Abraham had a promise, and it was great. Melchizedek blesses him. That's even greater. And that's God's way of doing things from Genesis, from the beginning. Everything else is because we had to do it that way. Jesus is asked about divorce. Remember this? And Jesus' way to answer divorce was to go all the way back to Genesis. And he said, you know, God from the beginning never intended for you to have marriages that would break up. That wasn't God's intent. But the Mosaic law that allows for it is because of your hearts and because of humanity and, and how we're broken. So the writer of Hebrews is doing the same kind of argument. You have a problem with Jesus being from the tribe of Judah? God, from the very beginning, had priests that weren't from the tribe of Judah, and it didn't seem to be a problem. In fact, there's really no evidence that Melchizedek's even Hebrew, right? It doesn't say in those four verses. So, and Hebrews doesn't go there, so I won't either, but I just wanted to point that out. Like, it does, we don't know where he's from or who he's from. Maybe he represents all of humanity. Verse 8 says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. I love this argument. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. When Abraham gave his tithe, this, there's this... Old Testament idea, inside his body sat little, like, swimming Levi. So when Abraham gave the gift to Melchizedek, that means even the Levites gave the gift to Melchizedek. That's a really curious idea, that inside of us are all of our descendants, and we represent everyone who will descend from us. That's a, it's an idea, but they're speaking again to first century Jews here, and that must have been a really compelling idea. So, hey, when Abraham gave the gift, little Levi was inside Abraham when that happened, which means little Levi gave honor to the greater priest, Melchizedek, even before Levi became a priest. I just thought it was a great idea. Verse 11. The need, we have this need for a new priesthood. So, if Melchizedek, what then is the purpose of the Levites? Why do we have Levites? Again, this is thick subject area, right? And they warned us, chapter 5, like, you got to be ready for this kind of thing. Why do we have Levites? Verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, it, it the people received the law, what further need was there for that for another priest that should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? 
For the priesthood being changed out of necessity, there is also a change in the law. If we have the Levites and they're so perfect, why did we have this idea that another priest would rise that wasn't a Levite? Why was that put in the Old Testament? So he's likely, this is being emphasized, that Aaron is the Levites, um, that there's resistance to accept this non-Levite priest. That resistance probably comes straight from the Pharisees, who we met in the Gospels. There are people running around. They've got their own idea how to do things. So that idea is probably baked in there. So verses 1 through 10, here's a clear example of a non-Levite priest that's even over Abraham, if that's possible. And now we have the idea that there's still a need going forward. There was a need before Levites, and there's still a need after Levites. Verse 11 acknowledges that it kept the law. That's essential. The priests shared and taught the law. Why do we have the Levites? Because there was a whole group of people dedicated to maintaining the word of God through the generations. And the Pharisees did their job in running around teaching people what the law was. They just did it kind of mean-like. So if God reveals everything all at once to one human being, then the human being gets the glory for that religion. But if God reveals himself over thousands of years, no one human being can claim that they did it. That's very different than, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Mormons looked at Joseph Smith. One guy captured all the law and presented it to his people. So they really are worshiping Joseph Smith, not the God who sent him. But Judaism and Christianity look through hundreds of people who have gotten the revelation of God that all matches and combines with each other. We don't serve or worship one person. We don't serve Moses. We serve the God that led Moses and the God that led Abraham and the God that accepted Abel's sacrifice. So therefore, if perfection were through the priesthood, why would another priest need to arise? So that the priesthood being uh, that that kept the law. And so if they kept the law and now there's a new priesthood, part of the law was how the priesthood should operate, like the book of Leviticus. So if there's going to be a new priesthood, then that book of Leviticus needs to be put in light too. Like, how do we read that now? What does that look like? Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, Judah, Jesus, for which no man has officiated at the altar. Nobody from Judah has been officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet it is far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law, but of a fleshy commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Where did Jesus get his authority? He got it in the resurrection. God honored him the same way he honored Noah by blessing and making a covenant with Noah, same way he honored Abraham by making a blessing and a covenant with Abraham, when Jesus rose from the dead, that was a sign to everyone that God was honoring Jesus' priesthood and elevating him to that position. That endless life is a significant thing. 1 John 2.2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That said, this is a minor point. It's major significant spiritually, but a minor point in the chapter. Jesus never officiated at the altar. He kept the law, he kept the law of Moses perfectly in his life. They could find no fault at the, at the courtroom of Caiaphas. They found nothing in Jesus. He kept the law perfectly, but he never officiated at the altar. One argument for that is because Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the priest, and he's also the sacrifice. So he never officiated an altar because he had already been changing the law for us in his, in, in his life. 
Moses never mentioned a Judah-born priest, but that doesn't mean the Old Testament doesn't mention it. So we reference Psalm, uh, the Psalms, uh, written a generation after Moses, under law, multiple generations after Moses, the law of a fleshy commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. We aren't just about the flesh or the day-to-day, -day, we're also about eternity. If I wanted a law that could take care of my flesh, Judaism would do that. If I want a law that takes care of my eternal salvation, I need the law of Jesus, which is a different law. So the law shows us how to live, but it doesn't give us a path to endless life. Jesus' authority being based on the law, but in the resurrection, is direct from God. Priests die, in short way to say that. The fleshy idea, priests die, they're just humans. But in, in Jesus being everlasting or infinite, salvation that I want doesn't die with my high priest. Remember when you ran to the city of refuge? You were safe as long as the high priest was alive. But when the high priest was dead, you had to go back to court with the next high priest, really. You weren't necessarily safe. So that's the problem with the Levitical priesthood, is that these Levite priests are human and they keep dying. So you really never have eternal refuge or eternal salvation until you get an eternal priest. Then verse 17 of our chapter. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So you get these little verses. Again, you got the Genesis ones that we already looked at. This is a reference to Psalm 110. It's in the middle of your Bible. God made it really easy to find. So if you go to Psalm 110, you're going to see a whole psalm that's kind of about this Messiah that's coming, that they predicted. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is after the Levites had been founded by Moses. So that's the argument where they're saying, why would that still be necessary if the Levites were so perfect? Why would that happen? Why would David write something like that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't, why wouldn't they be of the order of Aaron or the order of Levi? So he, he is here, this Lord that's being predicted, and, and they're predicted to be of the order of Melchizedek, not of the order of the Levites. So they point to this thing. Then verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Thick concepts, right? We all need to know the law because the law, once we know it, we realize, oh, we, we screwed that up. We didn't do it right. Once we understand that, we realize we need something more because the law didn't save me. It just pointed out how I'm not saved. So it does a job and it has a function. The law is perfect, but it doesn't make us perfect. It doesn't have the power to change us. It just has the power to point out who, how we are from birth. It reveals our need for a Savior, but it doesn't save. The law can set a standard in our life that we should be trying to keep. Now that we're saved, we should voluntarily be trying to keep the law because we love it, right? And so we want to keep those, those things that God put in place. The legalists, the you have to, you got to do it this way, you have to do it that way, all that makes me want to do when I was, it just made me want to rebel. Enough tell me, people tell me not to do something, it just makes me curious. How sinful is that? But when somebody says, there's a new way to live that you're going to find peace and rest and joy, rest was in chapter 4 of Hebrews, there's a better way to live life? Well, now I'm curious about that. How holy is that? See how the law doesn't lead you the right direction? It leads you the opposite. That's the problem with legalism. 
It's weak and it's unprofitable in verse 18. It's weak that it, in that it doesn't give life. It doesn't have the power to save. And it's unprofitable in that you waste a lot of time not getting anywhere. It doesn't change. So verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. It's really a simple line. There's not much to add to that. The law doesn't save, it condemns. It doesn't make you perfect. The law diagnoses the problem. Praise God, we need that. But it doesn't treat the problem. So it, all of the law, all of the Mosaic priesthood only gets us to look to Jesus. We have to have something else. So it says, on the other hand, in verse 19, God has two hands. He has justice and he has mercy. So the law is justice, like points to that. But on the other hand, there's another side to God. And that is that he provides a way out. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, sit at my right hand. God, I, God said to himself, sit at my right hand. Right? So the reference of hand here is, again, this is a great Bible study of Psalm chapter 110, that there's a better hope. Under the law, you cannot hope, you can hope to not sin, but under Christ, you can actually beat sin and get it out of your life. A clean conscience, like we just got done moving, so we got all sweaty and nasty and dirty and filthy because we're moving bricks and lumber. Nothing feels better than a shower after you've been working all day and you're stinky and nasty. Nothing feels better than salvation and redemption and the hope of Christ when you can just wash it all away and take a shower doesn't mean you won't mess up again, but it sure feels good to know that you got it off of you. All the law does is tells you you stink. That's not good. But Christ is like a shower. He rinses it all off. And the weight comes off the shoulders. So God showed that we know what God's way is, and we have it. Romans chapter 7 does a whole discussion on how important the law is. I'm just going to read a fraction of that. Because I think that uh, Paul says it really well. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. But I see another law in my members that's warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. The law is of God, my flesh is of me, and I see that those two things are in contradiction to one another. When people can come to that conclusion, they are ready to say a prayer accepting Jesus as their personal Savior. That, that's the key point at which we can switch. When you recognize that you are out of line with God and you have to get back into alignment with God. That, that conclusion, that intellectual thought brings you into a place where you can accept what the gift is. So why do we keep thinking about delivery from sin? Why do we think about a deliverer? Because the law makes us think that way. But we have a better priest, a better mediator, without a veil, and a better chance to be with God, with Jesus Christ, than we do with the law. High priests were made so by birth, heredity. God did so much more for Jesus, he swore an oath. That's the next argument in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. And insomuch as he was not made a priest without, without, without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath. But he was with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's interesting that the same reference to Psalm chapter 110 is made up in verse 17, only this time they put the full sentence. I just like, this is great argument building. The first reference in verse 17 just gives us the end of the verse, but in this verse, in verse 21, it gives us the whole verse in which God makes an oath. So, 
You become a Levitical priest because you're born to a Levite. You become Jesus because God swore that you would be Jesus, or he made an oath that he would do that. Furthermore, if you look at Psalm 110, verse 1, God actually is swearing. Who is he swearing to? Because it says the Lord has sworn and will not relent. Who is he swearing to in the psalm? And if you go to Psalm 110, verse 1, this is great. It's a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. First of all, we've already seen on the other hand being referenced. But now we see the Lord actually saying something to himself. Isn't that great? Who's God swearing that he'll come and be of the, he's swearing to himself that he himself will be the order of Melchizedek. The writer here is doing an expositional word-by-word study of Psalm 110 now. Started with Genesis 14, now he's looking at Psalm 110, and he's making this an example for how to do it. If I break down Psalm 110 from Hebrews, verse 1 of Psalm 110 is the Psalm of David. It's inspired, so it's after Levi. Verse 1, he's sitting at the right hand, which looks like Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19, on the other hand. Verse 2, he's strong. Verse 18 of Hebrews is about weakness, so a contrast. Verse 2 is a ruling person in Psalm 110. Verse 12 in Hebrews is that there's a change in the law or rule. Verse 3 of of Psalm 110 is your people will be followers. Verse 5 of Hebrews 7 talks about these voluntary voluntary, um, verses of command. In Psalm 110, it says the beauty of holiness from the womb of mourning. Psalm 19 of Hebrews says there's a better hope. There's something new that's going to come. Like, honestly, the way in which the writer of Hebrews is putting this together, they're just going through Psalm 110 line by line and using the arguments for Psalm 110. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn. This is actually quoted in Hebrews. And in verse 20, they point out, look, they made an oath. God made an oath here. That's important. So who did he swear to? He swore to himself. And there's kind of this repetitive form that's there. Verse 5, the right hand. Verse 6, a judge in a new law. Verse 7, he shall lift up his head. The outro of Psalms, or the last verses of Psalms, mirrors the first verses of Psalms. It's not quite chiastic, it's just repeated. And they've got the same arguments in slightly different ways. So when you point this out in in Hebrews chapter 7, they're making an argument from the Old Testament after the Levitical priesthood that points to an order of Melchizedek Messiah. That's as rock solid as an argument as you get for Jews. Like if you're a Jew right now, you should be thinking of conversion. Because this is clearly coming from your scriptures that this is how it was supposed to be. Christianity then is not in contrast to Judaism. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. It's the next era of Judaism. Jesus is a priest with an oath from God. This comes with five benefits. Then we're going to go through the rest of the chapter. Here's the five benefits. The writers are showing via Old Testament, this is not new. It's promised of old. It's a surety. It's a guarantee. Verse 22 of Hebrews, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of the better covenant. By so much more saying that Hebrews 1.10 is just the tip of the iceberg. So they're making this reference like we've shown you Genesis 14, we've shown you Psalm 110, but there's Jesus all over the Old Testament. In our evening Bible study, we see it almost every week. There's images of how to live, there's images of what Messiah will look like. We see the revealing revelation as we go through the Old Testament. There's Christophanies, there's typologies, mirrored images, progressive revelations, all of which point to Jesus. There's so much more. Don't be lazy in your faith, Hebrews chapter 5. Be diligent about learning these things. The more you learn this, the more surety you get in Jesus Christ. It's rock solid. 
and the world tells you things like there's errors in the Bible. The world tells you things like, well, there's some, I have some questions. Well, there's nothing sadder than a non-believer having doubts about Christianity. They don't know Christianity. They're ignorant. So show them what love looks like. Jesus has become something. We can't do anything, but Jesus has done everything. And the security there, the surety in the Greek, that's a word for a security that a loan officer gives on a loan. It's an economic term. Jesus is like the down payment on our loan. He's the guarantee of our loan. So when you go to the pawn shop and you give them an item, that item guarantees the money the pawn shop gives you. So Jesus is that thing. He was taken into bondage for our sins. He will pay our debt. So it's a benefit, number one. It's a benefit. It's sure and it's secured. So it's not something that we have to make payments on. God's already done it. Verse 23, also, there were many priests because they were prevented from, by death from continuing. There had to be a lot of Levite priests because they kept dying. Verse 24, but he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Benefit number two, Jesus goes on forever and it doesn't change. Remember when Aaron's sons, Elihu and Nadab, were doing funny smokes in the temple and God had to kill them? The problem with the Levite priesthood is there were eras where it was less, it was more corrupt and eras when it was holy. And depending on when you were born, you'd have a corrupt or non-corrupt priesthood. When Jesus showed up, it was corrupt to the core. Benefit of Jesus, it's unchangeable, verse 24. It's a holy priesthood and it never goes bad. So we actively follow it. Colossians 2.6 You therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. You've been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Verse 25 of our chapter, 20, uh, chapter 7. Therefore, he's also able to save the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he is always lives to make intercession for them. To save to the other, uh, this is another benefit, benefit number three. Jesus actually can save. That's a big benefit over the, the Levite priests. So, to save to the uttermost, it's a great phrase. The idea that we're saved from death and damnation, it's beyond that. You're, you're, not only are you saved from death and damnation, you're saved from the boring life. You're saved from dullness. You're saved from having a mind that doesn't engage or see God at work in the world. You're saved to the uttermost. It's wonderful. More than that, we're saved to the uttermost. <laughs> this is... In the Greek, this is full-ended or completely. So we have a surety in Christ. We have eternity in Christ. We also have the uttermost in Christ. We can have total confidence that his promise will be kept because the promise wasn't made by a human. It was made by God. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's pretty sure. That's the third benefit. God makes intervention for us. Then we get to the fourth one, verse 26 in Hebrews 7. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, for his, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. 
Jesus being higher than the heavens, that was the argument of chapter 1. Um, that's never been said anywhere of anybody in the Levitical priesthood. No Levite is higher than the heavens, but Jesus is. He has more authority, he has full authority. Benefit number four, Jesus has the authority to do what he say, says he's going to do. Your, your Levite priests will never get that done. He has no sin, so he doesn't have to make a sacrifice. The Levitical priests would make a sacrifice every day they were working in the temple for themselves because they were unclean to start. So they would make a sacrifice for themselves just to go work in God's temple. Jesus never had to do that. Again, he was tried by the civic government. He was tried twice by the religious governments. They ne none of them found fault in him. There was nothing that he needed to give sacrifice for. Verse 27, who does not need. Jesus is undefiled and he doesn't need a sacrifice for himself. That's a good benefit. The sacrificial practice then becomes done. Not only because Jesus has the authority, reason number four, but that the sacrificing practice is over. That's the fifth and probably the most practical benefit of not being a Jew. We don't have to give sacrifices because Jesus already did it. So it, think, of, think of the time and energy that saves. Like you had to work to give those sacrifices. You had to get your little lamb, pull him out of the flock, walk him down to the temple, stand in likely a long line, like going to the Renfest. And you get through the whole line, the priest takes your sheep, kills them, sacrifices them, sprays with hyssop, getting the blood everywhere. You get, if it's a, if it's a burnt offering, you don't get anything for it. It just burns up to God. That's like easily a half a day, right? Maybe a full day. Like Sabbath was a busy time for Jews to get these things done. And so the fact that we get to study his word instead of standing in line with our sheep, that's a huge benefit. So he offered himself up totally unique. Most gods in the ancient world, most gods in every other religion want something from us. God gave us himself in Christianity. It's the only religion where he gave us a gift and the only thing that's required is that we accept it. Everything else is voluntary. That's, and, and the, the, I love in, in, in verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners has become higher than the heavens. Jesus is the only God that's actually walked this earth and been there and done it and did it perfectly and showed us a path to do it, not just expecting us to find a path to be holy. He modeled it for us. Then we end the chapter in verse 28. For the law appoints, uh, appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. It's not that Jesus wasn't perfect before, but the plan came to perfection. The plan came to fruition. The revelation from Psalm 110 that, that Melchizedek ordered priests showed up. Everything's been finished. So the word perfected there is in that sense, like finishing a puzzle. It's not that the puzzle didn't exist before. It's that we just couldn't see it put together until Jesus. And he, he becomes the perfecter of our faith. So that's the summary of the chapter. Verse 28 kind of puts it all together. And we just got a Bible study of chapter 14 of Genesis and 110 of Psalms. And they're showing, they're walking us through it line by line. Look at how the Bible points to Jesus. Why would you go back to your old life led by these Pharisees, by these men of weakness? Verse 28. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever go back to a world being led by people that are sinful, greedy, lustful, prideful, aggressive, legalists, oppression people? Why would you ever go back to what they have for you? There's nothing there. 
They only can offer what's already been, or they can only offer you a life under their rules. Why would you go back to that? And this doesn't mean quit your job, because some of you might be thinking right now, yeah, that's like my boss. doesn't mean that. Your boss is a ministry target. Stick around and see what you can do. So there, there's that benefit. And maybe that's the sixth benefit. It's just Jesus is perfect. We follow a perfect leader that doesn't fail in any way, shape, or form. There are benefits to the new covenant. Verse 20, number one, we got an oath. He never, wa he never wavers or changes, verse 24. He actually has the power to save, verse 25. He's higher and has full authority to save us, verse 26. No more sacrifices are needed. One and done, verse 27. And it's actually perfected forever. This is the plan going forward for all eternity, verse 28. That's it. That's the game plan. Not only is Jesus fitting, he's perfect. Maybe he's not of Judah, but wow, he's so much better. And if only I had more time to tell, we could go through the entire Old Testament and see that again and again and again and again and root our faith in concrete and be able to move forward as champions of a living God. Amen? Dear Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you that they wrote not to accuse, not to uh, rebuke the Hebrews, but to uplift them and give them a solid and a firm foundation. It's amazing how the enemy uses Hebrews chapter 6 to make people doubt their salvation when the entire book is about the, the rock-solid hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I thank you for chapter 7. I thank you for the surety of Jesus. I thank you for a priest by the order of Melchizedek that serves the world and not just the Jews. So I thank you, Lord, for a, a priest by the order of Melchizedek that's from the tribe of Judah, who's both king, prophet, and priest all put together in one. We thank you for coming yourself to be our sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, if there's any sins in this room that are holding people back from living fully in Jesus Christ, may they repent of them, may they hand them over, so the plan you have for their life can be for perfected too. And we can march in the full confidence of Jesus Christ each day. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.